Our reading today is Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God. morning. Thank you for that reading. If you would turn your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 2, the section that has just been read. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we want to thank you for just this assembly today, the songs that have been sung, the prayers that have been offered. We know these uh, prayers are offered before your throne and that you are speedily answering our prayers. And now we pray that you will be with us in the preaching of your word. Uh, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Uh, strengthen and empower us to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beginning in the late 80s into the early 90s, I guess for about six years, I served every year at a Christian camp. It was a great time. It was really our family vacation. My wife would go, she would do the crafts. Uh, I went, I taught the uh, high school kids and uh, preached in the chapel at night. And we had a a wonderful time with uh, several of the kids from the local churches. One night I preached in the chapel, and I don't know exactly what I said, but afterwards there was a man who came up to talk to me. He had volunteered to teach archery, an older man, uh, good with the kids, good at archery. I said, of course, I'll talk with you. Just give me some time. I'll get the kids to bed, and I'll be right up to the lodge. And I went up there about 10 at night, and we talked till 3 in the morning. And he began to tell me what he was struggling with. And I know that I wasn't the first preacher that he had talked to, because he took me all the way back to 1963. And in 1963, he was newly married. 
and his wife woke him up one night and said to him, I have a terrible headache, just a terrible headache. I think I need to go to the doctor, but he said, just go back to sleep. You're going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. But everything wasn't all right. And she passed away that night from an aneurysm in her brain. And this was some 30 years later, and that man could not overcome the grief, but more than that, overcome the guilt of what had happened. He brought out the love letters from the early 60s. They were all tattered and covered in tears, and he wept and wept and wept with me. And I don't know that I said anything at all that anyone else hadn't said to him. I don't know that I helped him at all. But as I was preparing this lesson, it made me think about guilt, about the guilt we sometimes carry from the past, about the guilt that we carry in the present, about the sense sometimes that we're failures at the Christian life, just that whole concept of human guilt and all the pain that goes with it. The sense of guilt often robs us of the blessings of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. The sense of guilt is dishonoring to what God has done for us through Christ, and it robs us of a deep relationship with the Father. And to sum up, guilt has a paralyzing effect upon us. Now in the story here, we have a man who is paralyzed, and I'm not saying I'm using paralyzing in a spiritual sense. I'm not saying here that his paralysis was caused by sin. I rather think, as Jesus said in John chapter 9, when a man was born blind, the disciples said, who sinned that this man is born blind? Who is the one who sinned? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus said, no. It's not that he sinned. It's not that his parents sinned, but that wor the works of God might be made known. And I think this is the very same thing. Here is a man who is paralyzed, and yet Jesus addresses the problem of sin, the problem of human guilt. And I don't believe that they are connected to paralysis. As I said, I'm using it in a spiritual sense because guilt paralyzes, and we'll speak about that in a few moments. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is just set up the scene and remind you of who is here in this home. First of all, the main character, of course, is Jesus himself. You know, in chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus is described as the Son of God. The Son of God. Here in the text before us, he's described in verse 10 as the Son of Man. On the one hand, Jesus is said to be the Son of God. On the other hand, Jesus is said to be the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? I don't want to get bogged down in some kind of theological term, so I'll put it as simply as I can. Often in the Bible, not always, but often in the Bible, when the word son of is used, it means the characteristics of an individual. For instance, the Bible says that every single child of God is a son of light. What that means is they're no longer characterized by the darkness of the sinful world, but they're now characterized by light. And it says in the Bible that we're sons of day, not sons of night. 
See, we bear the characteristics of light. We bear the characteristics of day. And when it says that Jesus is the Son of God, it means that he bears the very characteristics of God. He is the image of the invisible God. John put it this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the one who walks into this room, this individual who enters the house, perhaps this is the home of Simon and Andrew, but he enters into this house, is God manifested in the flesh. And we can never forget that when we read through the Gospels. It's, to me, amazing. When God came down, walked upon this earth, it wasn't to the great palaces of the Jewish leaders that he went. It wasn't to the Caesars in Rome that he went. It was to a humble dwelling place, perhaps, of these fishermen. So the first character we see here is Jesus entering into this home. And then you have this great multitude of people who have gathered there. They're gathered there at the doorway. They've crowded into the house. They're gathered outside in the street, so much so that the paralytic man could not even be brought into the presence of Christ. For the common people heard him gladly. He had been preaching throughout Galilee. They have heard him over and over, and everybody wanted to see him. You remember last week when he went away and this pastor preached, he went away for a season. They came and said, hey, everybody's looking for you. We're all looking for you. Well, now they found him. And then the third group of people, Mark said the scribes. Now Luke also tells the same incident, but Luke elaborates on it. Because Luke said that there were the scribes, the great teachers of the Jewish law, and there were the Pharisees. And he says not only were there the scribes and the Pharisees, they had come from every town in Galilee and in Judea and as far away as Jerusalem. So here are all these religious experts, these Pharisees and these scribes, they've all gathered together, and I'm sure they were down front, I'm sure they're right there where they can hear every single word being said. I'm sure they're there not to really hear what Jesus had to say, but to judge him. They want to know, what's this man all about? What's he preaching? What's he teaching? And so we have these scribes and these Pharisees from all over. They've gathered together this great crowd of people. And then, of course, you have the man who is a paralytic and his four friends. Men of faith in Jesus, men of faith in his power to heal. Now what we also have sitting before us is not, you can see the scene of all these people who are gathered with these religious leaders, with Jesus standing and preaching. He doesn't tell us what he preached, does it? I think he preached the standard sermon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I believe that's what he was talking about. And you know when it says the kingdom of God is at hand? The kingdom of God is God's present right now. Spiritual rule and reign. God is reigning. God is ruling right now through Christ in the hearts of believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what he came to announce. And the only way into that kingdom is through Jesus Christ and through the shed blood of Christ and through the forgiveness of one's sin. But when that happens, they enter into the kingdom. Now, the crisis I see here is, first of all, physical. Here's the paralytic man. Here's his four friends. They cannot get in. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof. Now, the houses then were built with large beams, and then some tiles were placed on top. It wasn't really so difficult to remove a roof. It wasn't like they had to have a construction company or something. They just went up there, removed the space big enough, and they lowered him down into his very presence that he might be healed. But I also see here that there was a spiritual problem, and that's the problem of sin. There's the paralyzed man. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus knew what was in the human heart. He knew beyond the physical problems of the man lay a deeper problem, and that problem was the problem of sin. And then there were the scribes and Pharisees in verse 6. What did they say? Blasphemy, blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we always talk about the scribes and Pharisees in negative terms, and there are some negative things about them. But in this instance, they were good theologians. They were right. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Where they were wrong is that they failed to see that God was among them, that God was there, that God was there in the person of Jesus Christ. They were blind to the reality of the one who was standing before them. And then Jesus asked them a question. What's easier? What's easier? Is it easier to forgive sin? Or is it easier to heal this man? Now, I don't know how they would have answered the question because there is no answer. They didn't answer it as far as I know. But I know how I would answer it. Because I live on this side of the cross. It would be much easier for Jesus to heal than to forgive sin. God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. God demands justice. The wages of sin is death. The wages have to be paid. He came into this world to give his life as a ransom for many. So in order for sin to be forgiven, it was not just a spoken word. Your sins are forgiven. It was a foreshadow of the cross. The very first verse I learned as a new Christian is found in the book of Corinthians where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, Jesus was human, Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And there upon the cross, he became sin for us. The sin was laid upon him. He was punished for sin. 
He cried out upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And do we understand that that's the first time in all of eternity that the Son was separated from the Father as he bore the sins of the people? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he paid the ultimate price. You know, there's an interesting phrase in Acts chapter 28, or excuse me, chapter 20, verse 28. It says this, just a short phrase. Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he said, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, that's a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. And someone said, the church of God? He purchased with his own blood. God can't die. Of course he can't die. But in the person of Jesus Christ, he did suffer. He did die. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. You know, sometimes the hymn writers can put it a lot better than I can, but listen to what Isaac Watts had to sing. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. While might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in, when Christ the mighty maker died, for man the creature's sin. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And then some years later, a refrain was added to that song, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Christ, dying, bearing sin. You know, sometimes when one reaches the end of a sermon, they say, in conclusion. And everybody says, great. <laughs> Finally going to wrap it up and get it all done with. <laughs> we can go home and eat. I'm not going to say in conclusion. I'm going to issue, very quickly, issue a challenge. Because really no sermon is ever over with until something is done with it. You know, we're not just here to hear words spoken. We're here to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be lifted up. And no sermon is over until we somehow put feet to it. And somehow it impacts deep within our heart. So first of all, I would say to those who struggle with guilt. And I mean the Christian who can't get over the past. You know how it is. I know how it is. Sometimes I'm laying there upon my bed, and out of nowhere, something that I did decades ago will crop back into my mind, and I'll live again through the shame of what happened. 
And I know there are others who struggle almost daily and perhaps daily with a sense of guilt, a sense of guilt. I failed. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I did this today. I feel guilty all day long because I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, and I'm just consumed and filled with guilt. Let me say to you two things. First of all, as a Christian on a daily basis, keep short accounts with God. Don't let all this guilt build up, this mistake and that problem and this sin and that. Confess them. Deal with them every day. Deal with them when they arise. Deal with them when you said that thing wrong or you did that thing wrong. Deal with it immediately. Deal with that guilt that you don't have to carry it around any longer. For our God is a gracious God. Our God is a God who forgives. Our God is a God who washes us clean in the blood of the Lamb. And the second thing I would say in words of counsel about it is that we should never, ever, ever bring up against ourselves something that the blood of Christ has covered. It says in the book of Hebrews, your sins and your iniquities he will remember no more. Can God forget? No. But what it means is that God will never, ever, ever, ever bring it up against you again. When it is covered in the blood of Christ, it is covered. It is forgotten. It's cast away. It's cast as far away as the depths of the sea, as far as the east is from the west. He removes those transgressions from us. And he intends for the Christian to live a guilt-free life. Now, when God convicts you by the spirit of sin, confess it and then accept that forgiveness. You don't have to go through all kinds of gyrations. You don't have to beat yourselves up for days. You don't have to punish yourself in some way. What you have to do is accept what God has done. Place your faith in what he has accomplished. Give yourself over to him and let the blood of Christ, which cleanses us completely and wholly, let it work within your heart. And the second challenge that I would give is concerning those four men carrying their paralyzed friend. Hmm. To know him and to make him known. All around us there are people who are paralyzed by sin by guilt, by the trials, distresses of life, people who need a word of encouragement, people who need Christ in their life. Thank God when a friend comes along. This man had four friends who were willing to pick him up, remove any impediment, rip open that roof, lower him down, let's get him to Jesus. They were willing to do whatever it took to get him to Christ. And I'm saying as a church, we know Christ. Let's make him known. That's the challenge. Whatever obstacles in the way, whatever it is they are struggling with, take time to listen. Take time to hear what they're saying. Take time. And if you can't teach them, put them in contact with someone who can encourage them and counsel them and help them become to know Christ and to receive that forgiveness of sins. Remove whatever obstacles you can by the power of the Holy Spirit and present them to Christ. And the final thing I would say by way of challenge is this. 
God entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He came into this world with a sole mission. We heard about the good news of the kingdom of God, but that kingdom of God is here and is present and it's entered in through Christ Jesus. And if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, I say by the authority of the word of God, there is no other name under heaven given whereby you must be saved. And no matter what it is you're struggling with, no matter how much guilt has been accumulated in your life, Christ is able to take it all away. And you don't have to go through a whole lot of things to get it done. What you have to do is to repent. And the word repent means to change your mind. It's not beating yourself up. It means I'm going in one way. I'm going to turn around and go the other way. I've been going with the world. I'm going to go with Jesus. It's a change of your mind. And then there's that simple act of faith. Sometimes people think, boy, how can one get right with God? I'll tell you how. It's very simple. You accept who Jesus is. You pray unto him. You trust in him to take away that sin. And the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. And he'll give you new life and new purpose, a new walk, and a life that is filled with abundance and a guilt-free life. Thank you.